Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3 for the Old Testament reading this morning. Uh, we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 21. I know the bulletin says 20. That was my mistake. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, from, for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your, of your face you shall eat bread. <clears throat> Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The creation account is provided in the first two chapters of Genesis. And upon completing the work of creation, God testifies that all was very good. Our passage here begins ominously with the words, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Certainly this doesn't sound good. And one wonders even before hearing what follows, why can't 
very good last a little longer. We have a sense already of what is to come because we've heard many stories you know, over our lifetimes that begin like this. So Satan proceeds to bring about the fall, persuading Eve to distrust God's good purposes, to not listen to what she knows is right and to pursue her own desires to be like God. Her husband is with her and he goes along with Eve seeming, with seemingly no resistance. Immediately after eating the forbidden fruit, they both die spiritually and the glory they had before, which was their covering, is now gone. And they're overwhelmed by the shame of their nakedness and their guilt. As a result, death is now inaugurated in the world, spiritual death to be followed by eventual physical death. They try their hand at making a covering to hide themselves, hide their nakedness and try to hide themselves from God. God, while walking in the garden, calls out to Adam, saying, where are you? So we see immediately after the fall, God is seeking the lost sheep. God seeks Adam first because he's the one to whom God gave responsibility of tending and guarding Eden. And Eve is included in his commission. God, Adam has sinned against God's direct command. Adam answers the Lord God and so begins the blame game. Adam blames God for giving him this woman who gave him the fruit. The woman blames the, the serpent, and the serpent gets no question from God, but is the first one spoken to in God's curse. One thing that's plain to see here is man's typical response to sin. The first reaction is to hide and cover themselves by whatever means that they can, and then to blame others when it is exposed. So not much has changed in our day. It may look bleak at this point, for what appeared to be God's good plan for creation and his creatures. It's easy to believe that this breaking of covenant by Adam is something that was, has thwarted God's original plan. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's original intentions for creation are not finished. Nothing ever takes God by surprise that he must react and go to a plan B. His plans include all things that occur and they always work to bring him glory. In God's cursing of the serpent, we see a first glimpse of the gospel in a seed form in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God's telling the serpent that the one who shall come from the woman will crush his head though there may be a moment of apparent victory. It is important to see in this very first presentation of the gospel that it is described as an act of God that will occur in real history. It's not a principle, it's not a lifestyle change or an improvement, but a person yet to come who would defeat the serpent. In all of history, if any ever knew with certainty that they were without hope, unless God acted to save them, it would be Adam and Eve who alone knew what it was to have original righteousness and the trauma of what it was to lose it. That Adam and Eve believed God and this good news of the defeat of Satan is evidenced by God himself replacing their man-made coverings with skins of an animal, likely a lamb, and Adam naming his wife Eve 
who is to be the mother of all living. From her will come the one to crush the serpent's head. So we see from even the earliest pages of scriptures that those who believe God's word and his prophesied redemption are saved by a faith like ours, which now looks back to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Though those in the Old Testament had less detail than we do today, they could still, by faith, trust that God would act through the seed of the woman and defeat the serpent. God has always had one people, and there's one Savior of all. So here in the space of the first three chapters of Genesis, the repeating storyline of Scripture can be seen in the stages of creation, commission, fall, and redemption. Though there's much of the gospel that's still hidden at this point in mystery, a direction is set in the anticipation of the seed of the woman yet to come. When the fullness of time arrives and the seed of the woman is sent into the world by God, then, finally, many of the greatest mysteries since the beginning are unveiled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. And they can be found on page 1023 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. <clears throat> the book of John, 1 John, has been attributed to the apostle John, who is frequently described as the apostle of love due to his frequent references to love in his writings. In this epistle, John is writing to the church regarding false teachers who have been disrupting the peace and purity of it. John writes with the heart of a pastor, with urgency and compassion, frequently referring to those in the church as beloved and little children. In a sermon on this passage, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones states, the more I study the New Testament and live the Christian life, the more convinced I am that our fundamental difficulty, our fundamental lack, is the lack of seeing the love of God is not so much our knowledge that is defective, but our vision of the love of God. Thus, our greatest object and endeavor should be to know him better, and thus we will love him more truly. It is interesting that he doesn't say, believe our knowledge is defective, but rather our vision of the love of God, but then adds that what we need is to know him better. 
He's making a distinction between knowing that's strictly knowledge and the knowing of a relationship. Head knowledge versus heart knowledge. The two are not at odds with each other, but both are necessary. Too often people will lean strongly in one direction and may even oppose the other direction. What is said in a typical marriage ceremony that what God has joined, let no man separate, may be a useful analogy to remember here. In Ephesians 3.19, the apostle Paul speaks about a knowing that surpasses knowledge, where he prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In our passage, John explains how the love of God has been made manifest, what it is, and what it means for the church. As we understand more clearly what John is teaching the church in this passage, it should help us to know Christ better and love him more truly as well as one another. John uses the word love 13 times in these five short verses. In the times we're living in today, there's a tendency uh, of our culture to hijack various words and language and distort their meaning. Frequently, the purpose for this is to legitimize or camouflage sinful behavior. In the 1960s, there was a lot of talk about love, slogans like, make love, not war. Songs had lyrics about love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And love is all you need. There were also slogans like live and let live, which amounted to let me do whatever I want and I'll let you do whatever you want. I think this would stand as a definition of love at that time. So love is a word that is used, abused and misunderstood in multitude of ways. Looking at how John is using the word love and its unique meaning in scripture will provide guidance for us as in understanding this passage today. As we begin in verse 7, it's interesting to consider that the 60s generation would not have had much problem accommodating it. After all, it speaks about loving each other and that if we do love each other, then it means that we are born of God and know God. How great is that? So a good place to start is to ask, why would this be? What are their misunderstandings about this love that allow this? First misunderstanding is to believe that John is stating this as just a good idea or simply a goal. In actuality, he's making a statement about our identity as believers. He's giving us an expectation for those who are God's children. So John begins here in a manner that comes as a plea to the believer. Verse 21 of the same chapter shows that this love for one another is commanded by the Lord. There John says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. While we do not become God's children simply by showing love, those who are his children will demonstrate this love. In the book of James, James writes about faith and good works. While it can be easy to mistakenly read James as somehow saying that works are necessary for salvation, he's actually expressing the truth that 
the one with genuine saving faith will, because of faith's presence, show good works. In James 2.18, he says, I will show you my faith by my works. In the first verse before us here, we could think of John as saying, Beloved, show your faith by loving one another. A second misunderstanding is the kind of love that John is referring to. As we shall see, it is not a human love of affection or a natural love. It is not an attitude of live and let live. It's different. John then adds in this verse, for love is from God. And when we hear that, it sounds a little unexpected to our ears. If you or I were writing this verse, we might have said something like, Beloved, let us love one another because God has loved us. After all, since God has loved us, it seems only right that we would love others. This would be a fair thing to say, and maybe we have said something like it, and there's certainly an element of truth in it. However, John is saying something more than this alone. He is saying that this love by which we are to love one another is a love that is from God. He's not calling for us to love others out of our own resources and efforts, but with the love that we receive as a gift from him. When we are born, when we are born of him, the nature of this gift then is not only that it fills us, but it overflows and reveals that we have received it and that we are truly his children. There are parallels in scripture between light and love. So Matthew's teaching in chapter 5, verse 15, seems applicable here. Here he says that you don't light a lamp and you put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light in all, to all that are in the house. If God has given us this love, its nature is to go to others from us. John finishes verse 7, adding, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Again, the love referred to here is a love from God, and not the love that natural man and the one, and the one who shows this love towards others is showing that they are also born of God and know God. Conversely, in verse 8, John adds, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If we remember one of John's purposes in writing this letter is to help the church be on guard against false teachers, then the direction of this argument here in verses 7 and 8 makes sense as he's arguing that a true believer is revealed in whether this love from God is shown in loving on one another. It is not that the person who does not, if it's not shown, then the person who does not, then the person does not know God. So he's providing a way, in a sense, of discerning whether someone may be a false teacher by the mismatch between their speech about knowing God and their lack of love towards one another. By adding at the end of verse 8 that God is love, John is implying that the one who knows God will also be like him and show a love like his. The Greek word for this unique love that we've been discussing is the word agape. And in Vine's expository dictionary says that agape is the characteristic word of Christianity. That its usage in the New Testament is unique. 
and since it expresses ideas previously unknown, determining its meaning must come from within scripture, as outside sources won't throw light on its distinctive meaning. In an article by A.J. Torrance titled, Is Love the Essence of God? He states that the love which the New Testament speaks, agape, is that new kind of love revealed in Jesus Christ, which gives value to what it loves, even where its object may be degraded and worthless. And then he, pr he provides five characteristics to consider. Uh, one about agape. One, it is an uns spontaneous and it's uncaused. So it's not grounded in our worthiness or our value. And it's not responding to any necessity outside of itself. So because of this, all that God does has the characteristic of a gift. Two, it's indifferent to human merit. It's outside of human measures of deserving and undeserving. Three, it's creative. That which has no value acquires value because God loves it. The value of the one whom God loves consists solely in the fact that they are loved by God. Human standards of value depend on a perceived return of a benefit from that. Four, it provides for a fellowship with God. God alone can and does create and open a way for humanity to have fellowship with himself. And lastly, it's inexorable. That's a fairly big word. The word inexorable refers to something that moves forward without the possibility of stopping or preventing it. God's love will accomplish all that he intends. So granted, it may be difficult for us to have a sense of how these characteristics connect with what we typically understand by love. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us simply with these more theoretical sounding descriptions to be warmed and filled, but he understands our weakness and how to draw near to us. So we come to verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now Lloyd-Jones says about these two verses, there is no greater theological statement in the whole Bible than these two wonderful verses. And hearing this, it's easy to think, theology, I just want to understand more about God's love. While this reaction is understandable, there's a good reason why it's not possible to just talk about God's love apart from theology. By way of example, if we consider how various people may react to a war that is taking place, we may be able to better understand this. At any given time in the world, there could be multiple wars taking place. There's a war in Ukraine right now taking place. Over time, the news of what is happening would impact each person differently depending on their level of interest or concern. If you are from Ukraine, that may be one level. If you have a family member there, it may be a higher level. If you live there and have family member, or even have a family member fighting, it may be even higher. And the importance of it to you will likely determine how diligently you search out news about what is happening and what it means. 
So when we consider the Bible, we need to recognize it also, it is a story about a conflict. It's a cosmic conflict that we're all participating in. God speaks and acts in and throughout history that we might know him. The discipline that seeks to understand and explain his speech and his acts and this story as a whole is theology. In regards to this, Lloyd-Jones says, apart from these things, you know nothing about the love of God. The love of God I maintain is only understood and felt in terms of theology. And to reject theology is to reject the love of God and to be bemusing ourselves with some hypothetical and imaginary love. Verse 9 tells us that God's love was made manifest in his act of sending his only son into the world that we might live through him. When something is made manifest, what has been hidden is brought out into the open. It is revealed and made known. So here we can now recognize with complete clarity the person who is the seed of the woman spoken of in Genesis 3 that crushed the serpent's head. It's not that God's love has been, hasn't been shown in the past. All that God does is a part of his love. And so we recognize other examples of his love, such as the creation of all things, his providential care of the world, his revealing himself in concrete, it, revealing himself in his word. But here we have the highest and clearest, the most direct and the most concrete and the most intimate revealing of his love. It's also important to see that this love of God was made manifest among us. It was not just made manifest to us. It was not made known through some spectacular appearance in the skies or special spiritual experience in our hearts. Though it was external to us, it was near to us. It was not secret but public. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Have you read this passage, similar, this passage or similar passages in scripture for years and years or even multiple decades and no longer reflect much on them? You know what they say and have shared them with others. Maybe you remember the John 3.16 signs that used to be held up at professional sporting events and even mentally repeated the verse to yourself. It's far too easy to hear and yet not hear. In the Old Testament, Christ's coming was hidden in types and shadows. Very, very few understood who he was when he came. Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So 2,000 years later, does the news of the manifest love of God still stir you? Does it cause you to rejoice? Or has Jesus become a part of your hometown? So how is it truly possible for us to comprehend this, that God, who is the creator of all things, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, how is it is sent into the world to take on flesh and dwell among us? When the Virgin Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she would conceive and bear a son to be called Jesus, Son of the Most High, the question to Gabriel was how she, being a virgin, could have a child without knowing a man. So if we're considering the impossible, isn't the big question, rather, how can the Son of God take on flesh? 
A virgin conceiving seems a supremely lesser miracle compared to God taking on flesh in our likeness. We must not forget that God sending his son and his redeeming work is the center and goal and purpose of all history. For every life that's ever been lived, impacting the destiny of every creature and all of creation. We tend to think of his coming in terms of our personal salvation, but neglect Jesus' cosmic significance for all things, God being glorified in all things. In verse 10, John continues, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John first emphasizes that God that God sending his son is not in response in any way to our love for him, but only on the initiative of his own love alone. His coming is not a path to some higher life by assisting our own love and knowledge of him. No, God sent his son that dead men might live, not that good men might be made better Though the glory of God is yet veiled to our weak hearts and minds, the revelation of the mystery of how God can be both just and justifier of his children is right here. The wrath of God due us for our sins was borne by Jesus, the God-man, on the cross as he took our sins upon himself and was made sin for us, that we might find new life and forgiveness through him. This is what is meant when John says he is the propitiation for our sins. Here is the heart of the good news to all who call on him in faith. Jesus, the God-man, here completes by his righteous life and his work on the cross what Adam and Israel failed to do. In Jesus' day, though, there were those who thought themselves righteous Most Jews would have recognized themselves as sinners, trying to keep God's law with unending failure and the necessity of bringing sacrifice to be cleansed. In our culture, though we we don't have many people claiming to be righteous overtly, there are not many who would confess that they deserve God's judgment. They misunderstand their need of God's perfect righteousness to be saved. Many today feel they are good enough to be admitted into God's kingdom just as they are because, after all, God is loving and willing to overlook their minor faults. Understanding that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and have fallen short of God's glory is an essential aspect of salvation. Sometimes we hear it said that God hates sin but loves the sinner There is a seed of truth in this, but there's also a danger in it if we think of sin as something separate from who we are. To think we just need the right medication to rid us of this disease that hinders and bothers us. Sin only exists in a person as an intrinsic part of who they are, as a part of their nature. Before Christ makes us alive in him, our sin is our identity. It is why we are dead. Understanding this allows us a better understanding of how good the good news 
is and how vast God's love. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might have become the righteousness of God in him. In verse 11, now John returns with an increased expectation for the brethren to be loving one another after revealing how God has loved them. In being born from above and brought into fellowship with Christ, how could his love not flow from them to others? The glory that shone on Moses' face when he came down the mountain, having been in God's presence, was fading God's presence now in Christ, in us, does not fade. In verse 12, John begins saying, No one has ever seen God. Now commentators see a reference here again to false teachers who claim, who claim to have visions of God. However, the reference to seeing God seems out of place because it's not immediately clear what this has to do with the love of God being talked about in this passage. John then adds, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the question is, in what way does this relate to seeing God? If someone wants to see God, where does one look for him? John is suggesting that God is to be seen where God is present. And so God is to be seen in us, in the church, as we love one another, and God abides in us. He will not be seen in visions as the false teachers are claiming. Finally, John adds, his love is perfected in us. The word perfected can also mean his love is completed or brought to its goal in us. It is important to remember here that John is speaking to the church as a whole and not simply to individuals. This love is perfected among us in a way that can't be in individuals alone. We are rooted in this love from God, and this love is expressed through the various gifts he has given to individual believers as they are used for the benefit of the body of Christ and not for ourselves. Theologian John Stott says concerning this passage, we must not stagger at the majesty of this conclusion. God's love which originates in himself, verses 7 and 8, and was manifested in his son, verses 9 and 10, is perfected in his people, verse 12. God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us, or as it may mean, among us in the Christian fellowship. John is undoubtedly concerned about guarding the church from false teachers in this passage. He's also providing us a vision of God's love and how it should look among his people. His concern is not simply the blessing and fruit of this love from God that comes to us, but also showing also how this perfecting and completing of God's love in the church plays a role in manifesting God's presence in the world. We all agree how important sharing the gospel is in the work of making disciples, but how would this not be hindered if we share the gospel but the love of Christ is not absent among us? 
1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And in John 13.35, by, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what can be learned from these things? Jesus is the manifest love of God to us and for us. So let us consider some ways in which he, we might, he might better be seen in us. Um, first, as has been said clearly, this love from God is a love given to us. When we become Christians, Christ becomes, comes, makes us his own and makes his home with us. He gives us his spirit as a down payment. There's no other way that this love can be expressed or be possible unless this is true of you. If this is confusing to you and you would like to understand it more, I would be glad to speak with you, as I'm sure others here would as well. If your understanding of what it means to love one another has been changed after hearing some of the things today, then take some time to consider how the Lord might want to be using you in a new way in the church as you strive to love one another. Second, on a practical level, in order for us to carry out the command of loving one another, the value of our physical presence with one another cannot be overestimated. We all understand this when we think about our families. The church family is no different. We live in an age when living lives in isolation from one another is easy because of enabling technologies and a culture that encourages it. In the fall, we are reminded that one of our natural responses to our own sin is to hide. We isolate. Self-isolation has always been a temptation in our modern age, makes it easier than ever before. And many aspects have been normalized. Since these influences are the water that we swim in, we need to be discerning about how we are being influenced. Carrying out the Lord's command to love one another is most healthy as we spend time in each other's presence and community. Incredible technology allows us to see and speak to family and friends around the world in real time. In some circumstances, it's the only means of interacting with others and a great blessing. But these technologies can also provide an excuse for not being present. Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America said, Despotism, which by its nature is suspicious, sees in the separation among men the surest guarantee of its continuance, and it usually makes every effort to keep them separate. No vice of the human heart is so acceptable to us, to, to it as selfishness. A despot easily forgives his subjects for not loving him, provided they do not love one another. The isolated person easily becomes a fearful, submissive, controllable person, a lost sheep. So consider ways that you may, you may be unnecessarily isolated from others. Is it for convenience or comfort only? Loving others is, always, is often messy and difficult, and choosing to do so is even harder when the ways to excuse ourselves are simple and convenient. Look for ways you can be more present with others. Third, as has already been noted, this command to love one another includes those that are hard to love as well. 
of the things in our walk with the Lord that are humbling and cause us to plead with God for more grace, this must be near the top of the list. When you read the Bible, do you quickly pass by or dismiss verses about loving enemies or praying for those who spitefully use you because they are too difficult? Being humbled is a good thing. It is a part of God's grace to us. It gets us to the starting line of obeying. So how do you start? Maybe the way to begin is to pray, Lord, I have failed at this. I don't know how to do this. Please help me. Grant me a willing spirit. Maybe a place to start is to go through an exercise of identifying to yourself those in your life who are difficult to love or you may consider an enemy. If your list is large, then that alone may be a hint of where the Lord wants you to begin. Ask the Lord to show you how best to love them. Maybe you can begin by praying for them. If this is even too difficult for you, then ask the Lord to change your heart towards them and help you see them through his eyes. Fourth, consider whether you may be neglecting a key to better loving others by neglecting your growth in the knowledge of God. If you are a disciple of Christ, then you are to be a learner since that is what it means. Opportunities to grow in knowledge in our age are greater now than at any time in history. And yet Christians too often know remarkably little about their Bibles. The Holy Spirit is promised as a teacher and a guide. Pray for wisdom. There are some practical, what are some practical ways you can read your Bible, attend worship, attend Sunday school classes, attend Bible studies, engage in personal devotions, read books, listen to online sermons, podcasts, or audiobooks, develop disciplines of praying and singing. Scripture tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lastly, we need to not lose sight of the truth that this manifest love from God is perfected in us. In the community of believers, when we are loving each other, Christ abides in us. We are not individuals on personal holiness journeys. The Christian life can look and feel daunting, and we, if we are relying on our own efforts, it's not possible. God never leaves anything for us to glory in for ourselves. He is exalted when we are weak. He is, his strength is perfected in our weakness. To him be all the glory. In conclusion, please hear 1 John 5, 3-5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Help us, Lord. These great truths and commands are beyond our abilities unless you work them in us and through us. Not one of us is worthy of these things, only you alone. Open our eyes to hidden faults and grant us a hunger to grow and be more like Jesus. Grant that we would be rooted and grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge.
and together be filled with your fullness. As we go from here this morning and into this week, help us to meditate on the riches and grace we have in Christ, that we will be filled with the joy of your salvation, and that the love you have given to us will overflow to many. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.